don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there has been over the last year or two uh, a significant rise in people uh, interested in uh, their DNA. You know, it used to be DNA was just something that the uh, that the police department used to find criminals, but now it's something that people, 12 million people in America have had their DNA examined. That's one in 25 Americans have been through that. My family gave uh, this gift to me over my birthday this year, and it was fascinating to get those results. And some things I kind of figured was the case, but there were some surprises in there as well. And there's something about knowing that that connected me with my past and with people in my past and things about my past. I mean, there are, Ancestry.com has over 3 million paid subscribers. There is something about discovering things in our past, people in our past, something about that helps us feel some sense of meaning about our present. Because all of us are asking, in, in one sense or another, who am I? What am I about? And of course, the next question is, what is my life about? There, there is this struggle that we have sometimes to believe that life is more than just randomness. I think there are lots of people in the world who believe life is randomness. We just happen to be born at this place, at this time, to this family, have these experiences. It's, it's all just randomness. And one of the things that I find about Advent is that it reminds us that history is going somewhere. General history, your history, my history. There is a progression to it. There is a movement to it. You know, it is, it is a mindset of linear thinking that there is progression to it. And when you think about Advent during these four weeks, when we sort of uh, try to, to, in a sense, relive the centuries of waiting that Israel went through, we wait during these four weeks. But all the while we're waiting, we're moving. It's moving forward. Every Sunday, we're going to light one more candle. Every week, we're a little bit closer. There's movement. Because we believe that our God is a God of history, and that history has meaning and purpose to it, and movement. And I think that is one of the things that Matthew is communicating to us in this genealogy. Now, I suspect that this is not the first place you turn when life is in crisis for you. Right? I mean, you're in pain, you're, you're, you're struggling, you're looking for an answer from God, and you say, if I just read those names one more time, that'll be what I need, that'll do it. You know, you, you notice we skipped over a lot of the names, and part of that was, you know, because we couldn't find anybody to read otherwise. I said, do you want them read? You read them yourself. But, you know, it, it, we have had people read them before, but it's thought, well, let, we'll just move past that. It'll be, be easier to find some folks. But, it, it, you know, if you pick up the New Testament, probably you might skim those names, more than likely, you might just jump right over them. Most of those names don't have much meaning to us. Yeah, there's Abraham and there's David. And, and, and we see some of those names we recognize, but a lot of them we don't. And so we tend to ignore it. But I think there is a profound message in what Matthew's doing. He doesn't start his gospel with this genealogy by accident. There is a purpose to it. And his audience, his Jewish audience, would have gotten it immediately, something we miss. 
What intrigues me, one of the things that intrigues me about this genealogy is verse 17. After Matthew lists all these people, he says there's symmetry to this genealogy. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. There are 14 generations from David to the exile. There are 14 generations from exile, the exile to Jesus. And there are, some, there are some technological discussions about all of that. But Matthew's point is there's symmetry here. Now, I haven't really, through my life, given a whole lot of thought to that. But I have been recently. What's the point of the symmetry? You might say, well, that's just because that's what it was. Well, no, it wasn't just that. Because the first 14 generations, he's talking about 750 years. And the next, about 400 years. And the last one's about 600 years. So it would be pretty much impossible to have exactly 14 generations over those wide spans of years. Something else is going on. And the reality is that, that in order to get to the symmetry that Matthew wants, he leaves out some names. Now, in our logical Western thinking, we, that might bother us. Because we think, well, it's not everything isn't here. And maybe it would be better to say, rather than the son of, the son of, the son of, it might be better to say the, the descendant of, the descendant of. Because in some places you have father, son. Some places you have grandfather, grandson. Some places great-grandfather, great-grandson. They're all in the line. He's not making up any names. He's just leaving out a few of them in order to get to the symmetry, the message of the symmetry that he wants to get to. And the reason for that is significant. N.T. Wright says that in the first century, many, if not most of the Jews, didn't really believe that the exile had been fully accomplished. Yes, they were, many of them were no longer living in Babylon or in Persia. They were living back in Israel, but they still weren't free. I mean, think about it. You know, they, they left... Babylon, a group of them did, or left Persia, a group of them, in, in the second half of the 6th century. And now, 600 or so, 500 some years later, they're still under the oppression of another government. Ever since Nebuchadnezzar walked into Jerusalem in 605, the, Israel, the people of Israel have been under the thumb of a foreign power. Babylon, Persia, now Rome. They're not really free. Nehemiah and Ezra cry out in the ninth chapter of Nehemiah's uh, book. So now today we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. And that's great. But we're slaves in this good land. We're back, but we're not free. And you hear that all throughout their history. We're back, but we're not free. We're back, but we're not free. You haven't accomplished it completely. And Daniel has this conversation with an angel where he's talking about how long do we wait? How long do we wait? And the angel says to Daniel, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. 490 years, almost Half a millennium before the one they've been waiting for comes and before they experience what they're yearning for. Now, here's the thing. The number seven is significant to Jews. Every seven days, there's a Sabbath. Every seven years, there's a Sabbath year when the land is given rest. And they learn to trust God in new ways. And every seven times seven years, there's the year of Jubilee. 
And this was not only a land, a, a time for resting the land and, and things. It was a time, the reason it was a jubilee, the reason it was a celebration, is because the land that had been lost to debt or to other, peop, other reasons was given back to its original family. And people who found themselves enslaved, typically to repay debts, were set free. And it was a time of celebration. There's a lot of... of Uncertainty about whether the Israelites really practiced the year of Jubilee. I suspect if they didn't practice it, it was because the people who owned, now owned the land and had the slaves didn't want to let them go. Because it wasn't, didn't feel like Jubilee to them, it did to everybody else. But that was God's intent. That every 49 years, there would be freedom. And restoration. And now Daniel... In his prophecy, here's an angel say, their day is coming seven times 70. When the one you've been waiting for will arrive. And Wright says, it's sort of like describing the jubilee of jubilees. This is the great celebration. This is the moment when it's all going to come to its fulfillment. It's going to come to its perfection. When all that you've been yearning for is going to arrive. And I think that's what Matthew's talking about here in this genealogy and the movement of history that culminates in Jesus. Because he, even though he, dis, he divides it up into three fourteens, what he really is saying is there are six sevens. When Jesus arrives, he's the seventh seven. He's the perfect one. He's the one you've been waiting for. He is the completion, the fulfillment. He will bring in shalom. He will bring in all of God that God intended from the beginning. He will restore and heal and make new. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 4, as he's beginning his ministry, that he has come for the poor and to give recovery of sight to the blind. to set the captives free and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And all of history, Matthew is saying, all the yearning, all the waiting comes to its completion and fulfillment in Jesus. Sometimes we have discussions about wonder about God in history. All the things that are happening in the world. And we wonder, where is God in all this? There are different theories about how God interacts with history. There are some who believe that because God is sovereign, everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in history is God's will. It may not be his intended will, but it is his will or it cannot happen if he doesn't will it. All the, the great things and all the bad things has to be God's will, this meticulous providence. And the other end of it, you have people who probably in rebellion of that say, we can't really buy into that, so we must, it must be that God doesn't care and God is absent completely. God is the great cosmic clockmaker who winds it up and lets it go and everything becomes a mess. And I think they're both right and wrong. It's the tension of these two things. Because God is sovereign. God is the Lord of history. But God is also the one who creates, not out of power, but out of love. 
And at the heart of God's being is not sovereignty, as important as that is, it's love. Because God was loved before he was sovereign, because he was only sovereign when he created something to be sovereign over. But he's always been loved because that's how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, relate to each other, in love. That's the very essence of the being of God. And he creates out of love. Everything he creates is so he has a place to express love. And every moment of his creation is an act of love. And all of creation is a witness to God's love. But of course, you can't have love if you don't have the ability to reject love. If someone puts a gun to your head and says, love that person, well, you can do it. But do you really love them? You only, you only can love someone if you have the ability to choose not to love them. And so God creates a world of love, which then means that people can reject his love. Free will. And so we have this history of people rejecting God's love. And we're living in the consequences of the history of people rejecting God's love. And so the other thing that, that Matthew is doing in this genealogy is not pointing out the symmetry that the culmination of it is Jesus, but he's talking about who it is that Jesus comes to save. It's a unique genealogy. There are genealogies all over the ancient Near East. Most all the kings create a genealogy that makes them look in the very best light, that... that under, guarantees their good status and often these genealogies are sometimes connected to the gods but that you want to paint yourself in the very best light in the most powerful light so that as you rule and lead people will respect you because of who you are who you've been who your people have been and you would expect that out of anything you expected out of jesus right I mean, this is the culmination of everything God has done. And so if Matthew's going to write the genealogy of Jesus, and you're only going to pick, if you're only going to pick 14 of each generation, each one of those sections, you pick the best people possible, right? Not really. I mean, this is surprising. There are Jews, but there are also Gentiles, people that are hated by the Jews. There are men and there are women. And women tend to have absolutely no, no, no respect for women in the history of things. There are saints and there are scoundrels. I mean, you've got Abraham and David, but you've also got Manasseh, who is described as the most evil king to ever lead Israel or Judah. Manasseh is the longest reigning king in Judah, and he is so evil, he sacrifices his children to the god Molech, and he leads the people into idolatry and all kinds of heinous practices. And here he is, in Jesus' genealogy. And you would think it's a great thing that he puts women into the genealogy. It, it tells us something about how God views women, that often they were not viewed, especially in that ancient culture. But it is surprising the women he chooses to include. We have Tamar. Tamar has twins through with her father-in-law, who she seduces by pretending to be a prostitute. I think it might want to leave that one out of our family history. And then you have you have Rahab, who is not a Jew. She's from the city of Jericho, and she might well be a prostitute also. You have Ruth, who is a Moabitess. She's not Jewish. And then you have Bathsheba, 
whose sins are so heinous to Matthew that he won't even call her by name. He says, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet here they are. Saints and scoundrels. Good and bad. The thing about that genealogy is that Matthew is telling us that when Jesus comes and he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, it's not just for a little select group of people. It's not just for the people who have it all together and have figured it all out and are are the, the people that everyone holds up and says, okay, those are the righteous ones. They get God's favor. Jesus comes for everybody. And I'm going to tell you something. That's good news for me and for you. Because let's be honest, if people knew all the things in our hearts and in our minds, they might count us more scoundrel than saint. If people knew who we were and what we did, they might not think we were worthy. And quite often, we don't think we're worthy. But Matthew says, echoing the gospel through the ages, it's not about being worthy. It's about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of this. It is not just about a select group of people. The reason God calls Israel to be his people and sets them apart is not just so they will be special and everyone else not, but so that the world will see, here's what it looks like when people give their lives and their essence to Yahweh. It's not just about God redeeming us personally, as important as that is. It's so much bigger than that. It's about God restoring and redeeming all the systems and the the evil ways of the way our world operates. Turning those around. And it's not just about God doing something in us. It's about us being channels of God's redemption to the rest of the world. That doesn't know what we know and hasn't experienced what we have experienced. He says, Jesus, this is the the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And to say he's the son of David means that he is the Messiah. The one the Jews have been waiting for all this time. But to say he's the son of Abraham means that he is the one who has come for all people. Because Abraham exists generations before Israel. Abraham is the one that says he is there because of his belief, his faith in Yahweh, not because he is Jewish. Not because he's a child of Israel. He's a grandfather. And so you and I are not just about our lives and Jesus coming for us. It's about us being channels of his blessing and his grace and his restoration to everybody else. And if God is the Lord of history, then our lives have meaning and purpose. They're going somewhere. What we do, everything we do matters. Everything we do has significance. Every, every word we say, every action we do, it can be used by God to do amazing things far beyond what we would dream or imagine. God in us and God through us. We're going somewhere. If we're willing to trust our lives 
to this baby, this child who's come for us. I was trying to think of how to how to image this, and, and I got some help this week about this idea of a photo mosaic. If you look at this picture, you see it's just a it's just a block of, of pictures of people that could well be a part of our church. They're not, but they could be. You know, just people. Just people with pictures. If you zoom out a little bit, you see that actually this picture has more people than we realized. If you zoom out again, it begins to take on a little different essence. And if you zoom out one more time, you see the picture of what this is about. And there is something about the coming of Christ into our story. Your story, my story, our story. That God is not just desirous to redeem us and restore us, but to be agents for his greater purposes. We never know what role we play in the greater story of God for this world. And sometimes what seems so insignificant, God uses for things we could never imagine. Some things that seem so painful and difficult, God can use for the greater good of his kingdom. For people who haven't seen it yet. I, I believe there is nothing coincidental about scripture. Everything has a purpose, and every, every way in which the authors of Scripture put it together, they had a reason for it. I don't always see it, but I know it's there. I don't think it's a coincidence that after Matthew talks about this genealogy, he tells us the story of Joseph. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the story of Mary. He doesn't give us the story of angels and shepherds. He doesn't give us the story of the birth in Bethlehem or the census. But he does give us the story of Joseph. And it's an interesting story. Joseph is a just and righteous man. He's a godly man. And he's engaged to a godly woman. And everything is great. Until one day, Mary comes to him and says, I got a story to tell you. Would you believe that story? And he's like, mm, boy, I don't know. What he does know is that that child is not his. He's certain of that. But if he goes ahead and marries her, everyone will think the child is his. It will be a disgrace to him, his family. It might even hurt his business. Everything about who he is and the reputation that he has built and all of his integrity is going to be compromised if he stays with Mary. And so he does the thing everybody would do. He says, I'm going to walk away. You can see what a kind, godly man he is because he doesn't want to add public humiliation onto her that she's already going to get anyway. I'm just going to quietly distance myself. And then everyone will know, it's not me. I'm good. And an angel comes to him in a dream and says, Joseph, Mary's telling you the truth. And the angel says, Joseph, would you be willing to trust your story to God's greater story? Would you be willing... Would you be willing to trust your story 
to the greater things that God wants to do. And the most fascinating thing to me is when he wakes up and he says, yes, I'll do it. I have no idea what that costs Joseph. But he does it. We have no idea what God may be asking of us in our story. But he is asking us to trust him. To trust him that he is Lord of our story. To trust him, to trust our story to his greater story. And to let him lead us and guide us in the way that he knows is best. In his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the reason we can do that is because of this table. This is the God who gives himself for us. This is the God who sends his son to be born and to live a perfect life and to die and to rise from the dead and promises to come back for us. This is the God we're trusting our story to. Whose will is good, pleasing, and perfect. I wonder what would happen if we woke up every morning and did two things. If we said, Lord, thank you for being Lord of my story. Let it be so today, every moment. And second, we said, Lord, I am trusting my story to your greater story. Because I believe you're good. I wonder how different our lives would be. How different our church would be. How different these campuses would be and our community would be and the communities around us would be and our state and our nation and our world if every morning we got up and we declared those things. Holy Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the coming of Christ and what that means for us, for the world. Give us grace to trust our stories to you. To find fulfillment in Christ. And to be agents of your fulfillment and reconciliation in Christ. Father, pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup. This may be food for our souls. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.